Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1. First Samuel chapter 1. We're going to go all the way from verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 11. You ready for this? It's a long text, but 1, 1 Samuel 1, 1 to 11. I'm enamored by artists. I'm married to one. I've known many. It seems as though they can take things that are nothing and make them something. And I'm amazed by this. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be a, a lump of clay or a blank canvas, a sheet of paper, whatever it is, and they can draw something on it, paint something on it, mold something out of it, fold it in certain ways, and it just becomes this amazing new creation. And it's beautiful, and they put it in places in your house and things like that, and it just it, it looks amazing. There is a picture that Andrea drew nearly 20 years ago, and it's on the screen behind me. And this was a college art project that she did, and it's of her grandmother. And, um, and I had to, you have no idea what I had to do to get a picture of this. <laughs> get this up here. Right now she's looking down, shaking her head, and made me swear I wouldn't say anything about her. Um, but it is a, it's a charcoal drawing. And it's actually, I don't know the technical term for this, but it's basically a reverse. It's not, she didn't draw with charcoal. What she did, she drew technically with an eraser. She did charcoal all over the whole sheet of, uh, it's a huge, it's massive. She, she did charcoal all over, and then she took an eraser and slowly erased pieces of it until what resulted looked like her grandmother. And I, I don't understand how someone, I didn't even know that was possible. Like, it, to me, it looks like just a black piece of paper. But I remember we were dating when she did this, and she spent hour after hour, night after night, in the art building just working on this project for school. And it's amazing how an artist can take something like that and transform it. You can move to the next slide because you're slowly killing my wife right now. <laughs> but, uh, in our passage this morning, we're reading, obviously, 1 Samuel. We're going to go through 1 and 2 Samuel, and we're going to go in larger chunks than we did through Matthew, so it's not going to be as long, necessarily, as it was as it took us to get through Matthew. But what we're going to see in this book is that God is bringing about His kingdom from nothing. What looks to you to be a black sky, He is going to fill with stars. What looks to you to be like a pile of ashes, he's going to build a kingdom out of it. He's going to bring it out of nothing. And we're going to watch this happen through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. Let's read our passage this morning. Now bear with me, it's a lot of text to read, but let's move through this story before uh, uh, we talk about what it means. 1 Samuel 1, 1 through 2, 11. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest 
was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took, up, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young, then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought, Eli, they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Hannah prayed and said, and Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went, to, went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. There is so much here. We seek to unpack it now, and I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to hear and see what you have written in your text. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that we may be changed having encountered you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's do some work to understand the context that we actually find ourselves in this morning. 
Obviously, in 1 Samuel, we're at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, and it's sometimes difficult to, to understand context when you open up the book for the first time, right? But you have to understand that the nation of Israel at this moment in 1 Samuel 1 is in a world of hurt. I mean, they are in desperate need. So there's a group that Moses led out of Egypt that was idolatrous and was faithless. And so because of their idolatry and because of their faithlessness, God led them around the desert for 40 years. And the purpose for which he led them around the desert for 40 years was to kill off an entire generation. And so eventually what went into the promised land was a generation after that one. After that generation had all died, they went in to possess the land under a new leader, Joshua. And so they were supposed to go into the land and they were supposed to judge the land. They were supposed to go into the idolatrous and wicked people that were there and actually engage them in conflict and destroy them. But instead, in most cases, they chose to just live with them. They chose to just take up residence right next to them. So there they are, living next door or perhaps in the same city as Philistines, who are pagans, who worship a different God, who do not know Yahweh and don't revere Him. And so they're living next door to these people. And eventually, as one would expect, many of the Israelites begin to adopt all of the practices of their pagan neighbors and of the pagan nations around them instead of worshiping the Lord. And so we have this book called Judges, which comes before Samuel, uh, but this book called Judges, that we get this vicious cycle that Israel is in, where they begin to engage in pagan worship, they turn away from God, and as a result, God brings in an oppressor. He brings in someone to squash their neck and cause them to repent. And so, because of their oppression, they turn to the Lord and they repent. And then in response to their repentance, God brings in a judge. And that judge, which is where we get the name for the book of Judges, that judge comes in and he fights the oppressor, he scatters them abroad, he delivers this part of Israel, and he more or less kind of rules on some sort of a throne, as it were. But he delivers them. And for the number of years that the judge reigns, the children of Israel have freedom from their oppressor. They more or less begin to worship the Lord again and begin to engage in that kind of covenant obedience to the Lord again. And then eventually the judge dies. And when the judge dies, they turn back to idolatry. And then the cycle goes on and on. This pattern repeats itself through the entire book of Judges. But the pattern of the book of Judges doesn't just go around and around like this. It's actually three-dimensional. It doesn't just go round and round. It actually gets more severe. It gets worse. You see, each time the Lord delivers the nation of Israel with one of His judges, that judge sits on the throne a little bit less and a little bit less each time. And eventually the wickedness of Israel, when they turn to idolatry, increases. They get worse and worse. So it's not just a cycle that goes round and round. It's more like a toilet bowl. It just continues to spiral down the drain. Finally, the book of Judges reaches the very end. And this is how the book closes. This is literally the last verse in the book of Judges. It's in 21-25, and it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the spiral. That's how far we've fallen. So when the curtain closes on the book of Judges, it's about as dark as Israel could possibly get. The Israel that you knew before is versus the Israel that's now. The Israel that's now is a mere shadow of what it once was. The Israel that had a law in front of them that might have at least read it once or twice or even much less sought to obey it is gone. Everyone now in Israel is doing what is right in his own eyes. Do you understand what kind of moral depravity is communicated 
by an author in Israel when he says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You understand what he's communicating there? What kind of moral depravity is coming out there in that one statement? The nation is supposed to live by the law that is written for them by God right in front of them, given to them by Moses. And what the author is saying is that not only did they not read it, they scrapped it altogether and just decided to come up with their own law. Each person decided to just come up with his own law and does what is right in his own eyes. That's about the strongest statement of Israel's moral depravity that could possibly ever be made. You see, what he's saying in that that line is that Israel is a burning heap of ash. Not even a burning heap of ash. It's just ash now. It's not even smoking. It's just a pile of ash. They've burned the law of Moses straight to the ground, and there seems to be absolutely no hope whatsoever for them. What could possibly come from those kind of ashes? So the curtain of 1 Samuel opens sometime around the year 1120 B.C., which is about 40 years from the close of the book of Judges. So there's some overlap here in 1 Samuel and Judges. And it opens on a young lady, a family, with a young lady named Hannah, who is one of two wives married to a man named Elkanah. And Hannah has a problem. And this is our first part of this passage, is that she has a problem. She actually has two problems. The first problem is that she's one of two wives in this family. That's a, that's a problem, you see. Now, this is not the last time that we'll uncover polygamy in the book of 1 Samuel, and I'll spend more time on it later. But when we, as we're going through this, all I, I want to just say a couple of comments. First, the Bible's report about what happened is not to be confused with the Bible condoning what happened. You understand? It's telling the facts of the case, not necessarily saying that it condones the facts of the case. All right? And second, not only is polygamy not considered a good thing, and eventually people grow to understand that it's immoral, but it actually tends to lead in the Old Testament to the eventual problem. It never ends up turning out well for the people that are engaged in these relationships. It's by far not widespread across the nation of Israel. But what you'll find is it might not be the precise problem, but it will precipitate tons of problems that happen afterwards. And, and here we get Hannah's first problem. She's one of two wives in this family. Her second problem is that she's barren. The two problems actually relate to one another. She's barren. But her rival, Penina, has plenty of children. And specifically, it tells us in verses 5 and 6, if you look there, that her barrenness was because the Lord had closed her womb. Well, if it's not bad enough that she's infertile, her infertility is also used against her. It's used as an opportunity by her rival, the other wife in this family, Penina, to, to poke at her, to make snide remarks to her whenever they go up to sacrifice at Shiloh. You have to remember, this is all before the temple is built. Don't think Jerusalem. Don't think what you come to know in the Old Testament of the temple being built in Jerusalem. This is before that. In fact, now we're dealing with Shiloh. Shiloh is going to be that, that center uh, of, of worship. There's still a tabernacle. Joshua sets up the tabernacle that the Moses and the children of Israel carried through the wilderness. And he sets it up at Shiloh, and Shiloh becomes kind of the Jerusalem of 1 Samuel. It won't be till the end of 2 Samuel that we actually see the purchase of that site where they end up building the temple. So every time they go up to Shiloh, they go up for celebration of a religious festival. Each member of the family, kids and adults, gets their portion of the sacrifice. And so they're handed out all their sacrifice. And so every year that Elkanah hands out these sacrifices to the family, Hannah is reminded yet again that she has no children. All right, Penina, here's your 95 goats or whatever she gets. And here's your one goat, Hannah. Right? Every time it's this picture for her 
played out in front of her that she has no kids. And to make matters worse, Fertile Myrtle over here gets as many animals as she can possibly handle. She's got a veritable zoo coming to her. This would be an excuse for Panina at this point to make a comment to Hannah and criticize her. Oh, that's right. You have your one goat. Oh, you probably don't even need a whole goat. Just need a leg of a lamb or something like that. But as it happened, Hannah, to, Hannah was actually the favorite wife of Elkanah. So he would not just give her her sacrifice. He would give her a double portion. Perhaps maybe he was doing something sweet like saying, this is for you and this is for the child that I'm sure the Lord will grant you this year or something like that. But you see, immediately when we read this story, when we see these details in the story, it should perk up our ears. And there's a reason for that. Because any time there's a barren woman at the beginning of a story, you know God is about to do something. Right? God is about to do something. He did it with Samson's mom. He does it now with Hannah. He did it with Elizabeth. He did it with Sarah in the Old Testament. Every time we see a barren woman here, our ears should perk up and we should think to ourselves, wait a second, the Lord is about to do something here. But you have to connect the dots in the context of the story or you won't get what's happening. You have the nation of Israel, which has devolved into a nation of pagans with no central leadership. There's not even what we see is an ember flickering in the fire. And now what do we find? Well, here's Elkanah. You know, he seems to be a pretty good guy. What do we find Elkanah doing? Leading his family every year up to the temple to make sacrifice. Wait a second. That doesn't sound like there is no king in Israel and everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. It seems like Elkanah actually desires to follow the Lord faithfully. But you see, even in this family, there's a problem. They, they represent some maybe flicker, maybe an ember of hope, and yet there is a problem in this family. And the problem is, one, he's got two wives. One of them seems pretty vicious and vile. And the other one has no hope of children. So what hope does this nation actually have, this ember actually have, of creating a bigger spark or creating a flame if the woman who seems to be the most faithful can't even bear children? Well, who knows? But it causes Hannah to be driven to weeping and fasting over a condition she just doesn't eat. She's so sad she just cannot take it. So then Hannah's problem turns into Hannah's petition and her promise. The next section in the story we get is in 9 to 18. And, and the story moves to Hannah's petition and promise while the family is there in Shiloh on this particular occasion. Hannah has absolutely reached her breaking point. I don't know whether it was that Panina said something that was particularly mean this time or it was just the straw that broke the camel's back. But for whatever reason, she has reached the pinnacle of sadness over this situation. And so she takes a little walk away from the family all by herself. Spend some time alone with the Lord in prayer. And it's here that we meet the next character in the story. A man by the name of Eli who is a priest. His sons are also priests. So Eli, we know, is pretty old. But he is going to be effectively what is kind of like a chief priest in this area. And he's sitting there in the doorway of the temple. And Hannah comes along and she is making a promise. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. And she makes a promise there to him to the Lord that if the Lord will give her not just a child, but will give her a son, then she will give him back to the Lord and no razor, she says, will ever touch his head. Now, this is a Nazarite vow that she's essentially making for her child. The Nazarites were a group of people who basically dedicated uh, their, their life to the Lord or at least a particular season to the Lord where they were going to perform some sort of special sacrifice to the Lord. And this was a sacrifice of duty, one, one that they were going to do. They were going to uh, continue to be faithful to the Lord. And normally, a Nazarite vow, especially one that was guaranteed for a lifetime, involved normally at least three things. One was they would abstain 
from all alcohol and unclean food. So they would not touch any fruit of the vine, actually not even grape juice. They would stay away from the fruit of the vine completely, and they wouldn't eat any unclean food. They wouldn't touch any dead bodies, nor would they cut their hair. So there's three vows that you would be able to look at somebody who, who was in this state, and you would know they were a Nazarite. So here she is proclaiming a Nazarite vow on the child that she's going to have. This is what I will do. I will ensure that he serves you every day of his life. Now, the most notable Nazarite in the Bible probably is Samson. And the second most notable in the Bible, aside from Samuel, is probably John the Baptist, also a Nazarite. Now, Samson, the whole story of Samson in Judges is one long excursus on Samson breaking every vow in the Nazarite vow. From, uh, from drinking alcohol to touching dead bodies. And then finally, what is the last straw? See, the Lord gives him strength with the Spirit. And what's the last straw? He cuts his hair. There's no magic in the strains of hair that he has. It's in his keeping of the Nazarite vow. And once that razor touches his head, he has broken literally every one of his vows, and the Lord removes his strength, and he's captured. So Hannah is here promising, if God grants her a child, not just a child, but a son, this son will serve him all the days of his life, and he will be the judge to end all judges. He will be a Nazarite. But as she's praying, Eli observes, her lips are moving, but no words are coming out, or he can't hear the words that are coming out. And so he assumes she's drunk, naturally, as one would assume. Ironically, though, she is praying to the Lord, and she's telling the Lord that her kid will be a Nazarite. He will abstain from all alcohol. And here is the priest who's watching this prayer happen, who assumes she's the alcoholic. There's an irony there, right? Quite the opposite, actually. She's positioned in this story as a righteous woman. But also here's further irony that comes in. Hannah is then explaining the situation to Eli, right? Look at verse 16. She says, Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. That word that she uses there, she tells Eli, I'm not a worthless woman. It literally means something like a child of the devil. No, no, no. Please don't mistake me for a child of the devil. That's not what I am. Here's why that's ironic. If you go to chapter 2, verse 12, just flip over there and read verse 12. This is the passage we'll be in next week. But just peek in there. Now the sons of Eli... How does it describe them? Were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So we will see in the coming chapters that Eli's sons are the epitome of vile. They are the worst people in the world. They are sons of the devil. That is a great description of them. But Eli, what we'll see next week and in subsequent weeks, seems oblivious to their wickedness. He cannot see the, that his own sons are worthless men. And yet, he sits there in the doorway of the temple, and he looks out at this woman coming down the road. He cannot even hear the words on her mouth, and he assumes about her that she is a worthless woman. He's oblivious to the wickedness in his own house, and assumes about the righteous Hannah that in her prayer to the Lord, she's worthless. It's an indictment on the priesthood of Israel. In fact, it's an indictment on all forms of wickedness, isn't it? Doesn't depravity tend to change the world for you? Doesn't it tend to lead us to call what is evil good and good evil? Here is Eli, a priest of Israel, doesn't know how to distinguish between good and evil, can't even see it, when it's right under his nose. And yet when righteousness walks down the road, he seems to be completely oblivious to it. Nevertheless, Eli is a priest in Israel. And so, what the Lord is going to do, he'll deal with Eli in a little bit. 
We're not worried about Eli right now or his sons. He's going to deal with them in due time. Right now, he's going to respond to Hannah. Hannah, the righteous one, is praying, and the Lord is actually going to hear her prayer and address her prayer immediately. That's what's shocking is the stunning speed at which God comes to her and actually answers her. So once the situation is straightened out to Eli, Eli in verse 17 actually gives her a priestly blessing. You see that? He actually blesses her. He doesn't even know what she's praying about, but he offers her a blessing anyway. And so how does she understand what Eli has just said to her? She understands this as a priestly blessing. And how do you know that? Because her disposition immediately changes. She gets up and she goes away. And not only does she go away happy, but she even eats. She breaks the fast. So she is excited because a priest in Israel has actually blessed her. And she wants to be blessed by him. Please let me be seen as good in your sight. So then her problem turns into her her petition to the Lord and her promise. But then we see a reflection of Hannah's principles there in 19 to 28. You have to understand we're in the context of a vile nation, right? There's this, it's one thing for, for someone in the middle of Israel, in the middle of the darkness, to make a promise to the Lord. It's another thing for them to actually keep it. And it's not a foregone conclusion that someone in the midst of that kind of nation of wickedness, where there seems to be no ember of hope, that they would actually come forward and keep the promise that they made. So the story moves to show Hannah's principles. The Lord answers her prayer. Not only does He answer her prayer for a child, He actually gives to her a son, which is a huge thing. And she names him Samuel because she says there in verse 20, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, if you take the letter M out of the name Samuel, you get something in Hebrew that sounds very much like the name Saul, which means to ask. Saul means to ask. So the name Samuel actually sounds like, when you hear it, the verb to ask. So Hannah says, I've named him Samuel because I've asked for him from the Lord. But you understand there's some irony here too. Because we're going to see another Saul or Saul come later. But you see, here's the irony. When you put the M back in the name Samuel, it means name of God. So in, in a sense, what Hannah is saying about his name She's asked for him from the Lord, and the Lord has personally responded and given her the request that she's asked for. And the sense that you get from that is that Samuel is going to be righteous, and he's going to follow the Lord, because that's what Hannah asked for, and she's going to keep her vow. But later on, when we get this one Saul, this will be a king that the people of Israel asked for, and they asked for that king in rejection of Samuel. They reject what the Lord has actually given them, and they want a king instead of Samuel. And Samuel is really grieved by that, right? Well, what the name Saul means is essentially the Lord replying to the nation of Israel, you asked for it. So there's an irony even in the names that are coming out. She tells Elkanah that she's going to stay home until Samuel is weaned, which could have taken as many as three years back then. But the family clearly understands, you understand, that something important has happened, that the Lord has done more for them than, than just simply answering a prayer or giving Hannah a child. And the reason that you know that is because how Elkanah responds to, to Hannah after she tells him that. Look at verse 23. Do what seems best to you, Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. There's no ember of hope in this nation. They are, they are dark. They're a pile of ashes on the heap of history. And here Hannah has asked not just for a son, but a son to be dedicated to the Lord, who's going to serve the Lord in righteousness and faithfulness for all of his life. And I, Hannah, am going to ensure that he does and what happens with immediacy following the priest's blessing? Not only does the priest give a blessing, but then with shocking accuracy, 
Hannah has a child, it is a son, and she is going to keep her promise. So Elkanah and the whole family is not just seeing that Hannah has a child now. They're all seeing that the Lord is actually doing something in this nation. He's giving us faithfulness. The Lord is being faithful to us when He has no reason to be. The Lord is giving an ember of hope to the nation of Israel where there wasn't before. Because this Samuel is going to serve the Lord in faithfulness. You see, the, the, there's going to be a similar phrase used later on in 2 Samuel where the Lord makes a covenant with David. So David prays following. The Lord says, I'm going to make, yeah, your throne is going to never end, essentially, tells David. And I know this is getting ahead of us, but look, Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, 25-26, it'll appear on the screen behind me. Haha. <laughs> First time I've been able to say that in a while. 2 Samuel 7, 25-26. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken, and your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established forever. So it becomes very clear that the Lord establishing His Word, both here in 2 Samuel and all the way back in our passage this morning, where He's given Hannah a child, is not just opening the womb, it's God speaking into Israel's past. It's God saying, I am not done yet, but I am working in the slimmest of margins. I'm going to build a kingdom where no one could build a kingdom. I'm going to build it in the worst property ever, a pile of ashes. I'm going to bring forth from a pile of dust a blazing fire that no one could quench because that Samuel is going to raise up and not only is he going to be righteous, but he's going to anoint David. Do you know what David's going to do? His great, 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 great grandson. Do you know who he's going to be? He's going to give him a son and that son is going to sit on the, king, on the throne forever. He's going to establish an everlasting dominion. The story of Hannah takes place inside of a nation who has burned the covenant to the ground. They're nothing but an ash heap. Dusty remains of what used to be a covenant with the Lord. And there is this little barren woman in the middle of a dysfunctional family. And the Lord is going to visit her. And He's going to establish a kingdom from those ashes and Hannah's child is going to play that pivotal role. Not only is he going to be the final judge in Israel, he's going to be the judge to end all judges, but he is also going to anoint King David, whose line will have no end, whose grandson will be that promised seed from Genesis chapter 3 that everyone has been looking for for so long. So needless to say, Hannah intends on keeping her vow. Elkanah intends on holding her to her vow. But they all understand the Lord is doing something here that's bigger than simply just a child. So finally we get to Hannah's proclamation that she makes here in verses 1 to 11. Hannah breaks out into song at the close of this scene. But understand, when you read her prayer, Hannah doesn't see the birth of Samuel as normal. She sees it as normative. Not normal, but normative. She understands that the Lord is establishing a pattern for how He's going to deal with the nation of Israel going forward. Things are changing, and I recognize it with this baby being born. And first she gives her perspective. In verses 1 to 3, she says, look, there's no room for prideful talk. I've had a baby. I was barren. The Lord answered my prayer. I've had a child. What room is there for any of us to be prideful or talk about what we can and can't do? I couldn't even have a child. And here the Lord has come to me. Now, she doesn't say the name Panina in this prayer. <laughs> And, and, and maybe, maybe she doesn't mean Panina when she's talking about all of this, but maybe that's just plausible deniability. I think if it had a title over this section that was in the original Hebrew, it would probably be translated to Hannah throws shade at Panina. 
because there seems to be some side-eye glances over here that seem remarkably accurate to the situation that she was in. But the Lord has answered her prayers, but what she sees is this is indicative of salvation for me. The Lord has heard me, and He has responded to me. There's this God of all creation, and yet here is little me in Shiloh, a barren woman, praying, and yet with incredible speed and accuracy, He heard me. But then look, she establishes the Lord's pattern. Look at verses 4 to 8. This is what she says is indicative of His pattern. The way He will respond to His people for the rest of time. This is how He operates. He operates in the narrow places. He operates in the margins. He operates in the shadows. He operates in circumstances that seem impossible. He opens the womb of a barren woman. You know what else He does? He narrows armies from thousands to hundreds. Why does He do that? Why does He take this big impressive army with Gideon and whittle them down to where they're practically nothing? Look at verse 8. He brings the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. There we go. To make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Yahweh is the God of the dramatic, of the impossible. Look at verse 5. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. She says, this is a pattern that the Lord not only does, this is the way He operates, and you know what? This is going to be the way He operates throughout the course of time. This is who we're going to know God to be. He's going to get those that have, have been full, they've now hired themselves out for bread. There's a reversal happening here. God is turning the tides. Those who were chastised, who, were, who, were, who had the snide remarks made to them because they were barren, those who had nothing, those who were hungry, He's now exalting to a position of authority in His kingdom. And those who made the snide remarks, those who were full, those who were rich and prosperous and arrogant, He has debased and humiliated. And that's the way that He operates. In fact, He's going to operate that way until His kingdom comes to the full. Until His kingdom is fulfilled, He is always going to operate that way. And when we flash forward in the Bible all the way to the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 53, there we see another young lady who is pregnant for the first time. Her name is Mary, and she was a virgin. And she, she expounds beautifully in this prayer that we call the Magnificat. And here's what she says in verse 53 of Luke chapter 1. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. What do you think is on Mary's mind there when she's praying that? Do you think that it might be calling back to what Hannah saw as the Lord establishing many, many years ago, that he is now bringing to the full here with this child in her womb. See, God is operating in the margins. He's working with the small. He's doing the impossible. And he's going to continue to do the impossible until he has finally established his kingdom through Christ, born not of a barren woman, born of a virgin. You want to see an ash heap? You want to see doing the impossible, operating in the margins? Here's a virgin who gave birth. He's going to come. This child is not only going to be born of a virgin, but he's going to come and suffer the wrath of God for his people. He's going to remember their sins no more because, fine, great, Lord, you're going to do this. You're going to operate this way. You're going to bring forward a Savior. But you know what's the problem? Is, is your people that you're coming to save are still sinful. How are you going to deal with that? Aren't you just? Aren't you holy? What are you going to do with that? He's going to redeem them too. You want to see an ash heap? Me before Christ. You before Christ. 
And yet, how is God going to build His kingdom? Through one born of a virgin. Establishing the promise forever. Look at what she says. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. In this book, we're going to see that His anointed is initially David, but ultimately we know it's not David. Ultimately, it's going to be Christ who is the anointed that He's going to establish. And who does he call to be a part of his kingdom? He comes in Matthew chapter 5 and he calls the poor in spirit. Those who mourn the meek. What is he doing but reversing the tides of history? He's not establishing a kingdom built already upon the strong. He's establishing it on the backs of the weak. Those who know that they are sinners, who know that they have need for Christ, who cannot have salvation any other way but by his name and know it He came for the plebeians, the ones who pound their chests, and they say to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not for those who say, thank you, God, that you made me not like the rest of these. Hannah prophesies here at the end in verses 9 and 10 that he's going to continue, she says, to guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. God is not only answering the prayer of Hannah by reversing her barren state, but Hannah sees that this is foreshadowing the salvation that's going to come to Israel through her judgment. God is going to bring judgment to her, and through it, He is going to bring Israel to salvation. There has been no king in Israel. So every man did what was right in his own eyes. He did all the things that he thought to do on his own. He became a king in and of himself. Well, this is the end of that. This is the beginning of God bringing down the powerful and raising the kingdom from the ashes. So for us, on this side of Christ, the birth of Samuel is really a call for us to hear and respond to the gospel of Christ. That's what we're reading. This is a call to respond to and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. What God is establishing as far back as Adam, who He also brought from the dirt, is His kingdom where the wicked shall be cut off and the righteous will live forever. But you know there's a problem. You and I aren't righteous. He's going to establish His kingdom of righteous people, but you and I are not righteous. We deserved actually to be cut off forever. But see, God is holy and He's just, but He's also merciful and loving. And so instead what He does is send Christ, born of a virgin, living a perfect life, to die on the cross for our sins and offering to us His righteousness instead. Making not only His people forgiven of sin, but also righteous, able to live and please God. And so He's going to exhort the horn of Jesus, His anointed forever. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to exalt the poor in spirit. He's going to give salvation to those who are in need of it. But the the word to us is also, be careful. Because He's not going to wait forever. See, Christ has come. He's come. He's died on the cross. We have fair warning. We have documented record here. Historical preservation of fact given to us in this word. That Christ has come. And since He is storing up all this for judgment one day, we know that We're going along as if everything is normal until one day it won't be, you understand. We will get no other prior warning. One day the Lord will return, and there we will all stand in front of the throne, giving an account for everything that we have said or done. Jesus says every careless word will be on display. So the response from us is don't wait forever. Now is not a time to be boastful. Now is a time to return to the Lord. Now is a time to understand His forgiveness is offered to you by grace, through faith. Repent of your sins and believe. But brothers and sisters, the Word is also to you. Do you understand 
sometimes we need to think about what world we're actually living in and what kind of kingdom we actually live in. Our temptation is to give in to all the things of the world, but Hannah says the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. That's not cosmology. She's not saying this is how, if you were to take a view back from space, you were to look at the earth from the moon, this is how it actually looks. That's not what she's talking about. That's theology. She's saying the root of our entire life comes down and is built on the Word of God Himself. All these things come back to Him. That's a new mama looking down in the face of this little boy that is a miracle to her that she didn't think was even possible and saying, in fact, God sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. You understand that's the kingdom that you're a part of? Some of you are praying for a spouse who is blind to the truth of the gospel. Some of you are praying for children who are likewise blind. Some of you are praying for friends or family members. And you may feel like there's no hope for them. That man, they are lost. Maybe they have even cut you off and won't talk to you anymore, and you've resigned to pray for them, but sometimes deep inside you feel like that's not enough. But you need to be reminded that God always hears the prayers of His people. Sees every tear. Understands every heartache. Now, He doesn't always answer prayer in the way that He did with Hannah, but you need to remember that first... This is His kingdom that He is building and He will get His way. He sits in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. And here's the thing. If all you have left is prayer and the advocate that you have in the heavens who hears you is the God of all creation who does whatever He pleases, who closes wombs and opens wombs, who establish His kingdom from the ashes, who operates in the margins with the slimmest of territories when He does seemingly the impossible, if that's who you have as an advocate in your prayers, well, then we have an advocate indeed. So the call for us is to trust Him. To know this is God's world and we're invited to live in it. And if we're His in Christ, we're His. And there's nothing that can take us away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for Your Word that it would sit on our hearts like a stone that we would never be able to move it, that it would gradually occupy more area, more territory of our hearts until our worldview is shaped and formed by your word, by what you say is true. Help us to understand the word that you've spoken. Help us to understand what it means. Help us to apply it to our own lives. We also pray for those who we've mentioned, those who have run far away from the Lord, who have walked away in sin, we pray that, Lord, you would come to them, you would shatter their hearts even now, that you would help them to understand and see the gospel even for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.